This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057 and email at inbox at rallycheck.radio. We love hearing from you. Uh, we've got one of my old-time favourites uh, coming up to talk to us, Dr. Don Bresh. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Rodney. Well, I got you on to talk about inflation. Then I added in GST, and I got a few more things to add. But first of all, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm in Tauranga at the moment. I was in Christchurch a couple of days ago, and I'll be in Auckland mm. next week, but I'm in Tauranga right now. How do you love Tauranga? Because you're living there. Uh, I'm like it a lot. It's a much smaller city, of course, than Auckland. Yes. Easier, easier to get around, and uh, climate is marginally, well, hard to tell. <laughs> Some days it's uh, pretty crappy, but uh, today it's not too, well, today is pretty crappy, actually, but nothing like as bad as you've had in the South Island. Well, can I tell you, I'm looking out my window now, and it's snowing, and it snowed all night, and um, it looks like when we were kids, one of those things you'd pick up and shake, you know, those those little round balls, and all the snow would come. And for some reason, to a Kiwi, because we don't get a lot of snow, uh, when it's snowing, it just looks delightful, right? Magic. <laughs> and it's not enough. It's not enough that you have to sh- uh, shovel or anything. It's a couple of inches. But the kids are all excited because um, there's been a shortage of snow uh, in the mountain. I suspect there'll be a surfeit of snow uh, now. So that that's the weather done, Don. Now. I'm going to hit you with something. (laughs) You must have been putting your Hobson's Pledge hat on. It must have been with mixed emotion that you said goodbye to the wonderful, gorgeous Casey Costello. Uh, Yes, indeed, it was. Casey Costello has been enormously helpful to Hobson's Pledge since we began. We started in 2016, and Casey was there from the very start. And... uh, Casey has been an absolute rock of Hobson's Pledge, committed to one law for everybody. She is, of course, part Napoi, part Maori, but uh, she believes strongly that all New Zealanders, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their ancestry, should be treated equally. And uh, if she makes it to Parliament, she'll certainly be pushing that line very strongly. She's a tough lady. She is indeed. Well, um, I know you. And I know you would have encouraged her, even at your cost, in terms of Hobson's pledge. Yeah, I encouraged her if she was guaranteed a top six position, because there's no earthly point in her standing for a party which may not make 5%. Um, If it doesn't make 5%, of course, she is not in. Mm. Uh, If it makes 5% and she's ranked at number eight or nine, she's still not in. So I said, for goodness sake, don't accept that invitation unless you can be guaranteed a top six position. Did you get the guarantee? That I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it. If we know anything about Mr. Peters, um, it will not be any guarantee. And so um, I've got to tell you something, Don. I'm sort of ashamed to admit this. Man, if she was in the top six, I might take myself to the ballot box, which would be a shocking thing in of itself. And I might tick New Zealand First's box which would be the most horrific thing I could imagine a year ago doing. But I'd do anything to get Casey Costello into Parliament. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't plan to vote New Zealand First myself, I must say. Um, you mentioned that at one point you might talk this morning about GST off principles. <laughs> I mean, Winston Peters wants to take GST off all food, which is just oh. nuts. Um, well, so there's so much about New Zealand First that I don't like. I do admire the fact that Winston has consistently been an advocate for e uh, equality before the law. That's been one of his abiding principles, and he stuck by that through hell and high water. Saying it. Sorry? He says it. Yeah. He doesn't. I, well, I mean, no, actually, I, I think he actually, in the 2017-2020 coalition government, he actually delivered some of that for okay. that principle. For example, uh, the Labour government wanted, the Labour coalition government wanted to uh, put appointed uh, 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 people on the Canterbury Regional Council, and Winston blocked that. Mm. Uh, now, of course, they put it through in the last term when the New Zealand First was not there. Uh, I think Labour wanted to entrench Maori electorates, mm. and Winston prevented that happening. So there's several things he did which were consistent with his principles on, on equality, but uh, I admit he didn't get nearly as much done as I would like to have seen. It's a funny thing, isn't it, that um, we've been in such a disruptive time that here I am bordering on uh, becoming a Christian and thinking of voting New Zealand first. I mean, um, if you'd said any of that to me two years ago, I would have said you're certifiable, and yet here we are <laughs> because we are living in a topsy-turvy world. And... Um, but good on you. Are you looking for a replacement for Casey Costello? Uh, not at this stage. I mean, at the moment, I would, I'll be fronting all the Hobson's Bridge stuff mm -hmm. in the election. If Casey did not get elected, we would gladly welcome her back. Of Absolutely. Course. Absolutely. What a, what a wonderful woman. Hopefully, um, let me say that hopefully, of course, if uh, there's a National Act government where Act is a significant block of votes, uh, Act is pushing a one law for all line very strongly also. Mm. Um, so hopefully... Well, my big appeal to New Zealand first is Casey Costello. And if Winston, I know I, I wouldn't trust him ever, but um, I have said I'm a single issue voter in the sense that I want a proper inquiry into the vaccine injured. And all I know is that there are people who are vaccine injured there are people that the vaccine has killed, and that's medically established by the authorities. And it's all put your hand in your ears and go la di la di la. If you look at what some serious people are saying here and overseas, and common sense experience of friends and loved ones, there are people who are injured, and there are people who have died, and. <clears throat> They can't get ACC, the injured ones. They can't get help. They get told by the doctor that they're nutty. Some of these are my friends. And they're not. I've interviewed people and they're not. I've met them and they're not. And because it's political dynamite, the media and our institutions and our politics have turned their back on these injured people. And the one thing, that's my vote. My vote is for a health select committee inquiry simply 
into the extent and what we can establish of these injuries and to allow the vaccine injured to come to parliament and explain what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. And Winston's the only one of the party at this stage looking like he could get in that's saying he would do that. Oh, man, you imagine, think of this, Don, and I'll, only because we got onto this, but if there were 30 people in New Zealand severely injured by something that the government told you that you had to do, there'd be a massive inquiry. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I don't think anyone doubts it's more than 30. I don't have a feel for the numbers at all. But you know it's some, right? I, I assume it's some. I don't, I, yeah. Honestly, it's not an issue I followed very closely, to be, to be honest. Yeah, well, I'm, trouble is I'm um, head over heels in it because it's, I have such a sense of outrage over it. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, of course, for many cases, it's hard. Um, but overseas, uh, there's a lot more work being done. And um, anyway, so that's why I am persuaded uh, by Mr. Peters, even though I don't, I wouldn't trust him as far as I could pick him up and and have him over a cliff that was a thousand feet high uh, in the ocean waves. But Casey Costello, oh my goodness, she is one um, impressive lady, and you have done a great job. Um, and encouraging her. So thank you for that, Don, for on behalf of us all. Now, tell us this. The economy was all going great guns, we were told. And, oh, my goodness, we got through COVID and the lockdowns, and we were awash. We felt rich. Then oh, it starts to grind its gears, and things start getting tough. Oh, and you go to the supermarket, and everything starts getting expensive can't find any bloody eggs. Um, the shelves occasionally are bare. I had about three weeks before I could get, um, it sounds a third world, a first world problem, doesn't it? Before I could get lunch wrap. Uh, no shops had lunch wrap for some weeks. Anyway, prices are shooting up. You're hurting it. And just when you're struggling, the Reserve Bank comes along and jams up interest rates to make you suffer even more and businesses hurt, and to an ordinary person looking at this, you're thinking, this is crazy. Right when we need some help, you're kicking us in the guts. And then you have a Reserve Bank governor telling us that it's for our own good. Now, walk me through that. <laughs> Rodney, you're asking me, Okay, I was Reserve Bank Governor, and I'm going to answer your question. But you, of course, were a lecturer in economics and understand the issues at least as well as I do. But I'll, I'll try and explain it in my words. I mean, you say everyone was hurt. In fact, there were lots of people who benefited from increasing interest rates. All the people money in the bank on deposit suddenly saw their deposit rates go from minus, less than one to three, four, five, six. So they were a beneficiary of that. Yes, there were people hurt and hurt badly. And it's one of the issues which troubles me greatly that using monetary policy to, to affect the inflation rate has a differential impact on people. Some people are severely impacted negatively, others benefit. And there was an article in the Herald, what, a month or so back, raising that very question. And I'm troubled by it too. 
I'm not quite sure how you avoid that. But, I mean, uh, over long periods of time, we've begun to understand that inflation is bad news. Changing prices uh, across the board hurts people. Uh, now, that's not everybody. Again, it benefits some people. The people who, for argument's sake, bought property and just sat on it for 10 years or 20 years suddenly find themselves as millionaires, especially if they borrow money to buy the, the property. Mm. And many New Zealanders benefited enormously from the fact that the property market exploded with general inflation. But others were, were disadvantaged. I mean, I, I've, I've told the story many times. I may have told it even to you. In 1971, I bought a house on the North Shore of Auckland, beautiful home overlooking the sea, five bedrooms, three bathrooms, et cetera, for $43,000. Oh, my goodness. Which was about three times my substantial salary at that point of 14000 My uncle... So $14,000 for a salary in 1971 was a lot of money. For the chief executive of an investment bank, my, my secretary, I think, was getting 2500 so fourteen thousand, uh, and the house was three times that. Uh, at the same year, by chance, my uncle, who had been uh, growing apples in the Nelson region, sold his orchard when he retired from orcharding. And being a cautious and conservative kind of guy, he invested the proceeds of the, that sale in eighteen-year government bonds at five point four percent interest. Perhaps fortunately for him, when he when those bonds matured, he was dead. But the $30,000 for which he sold his orchard in 1971, at that point would have bought him 11 Toyota Corolla cars. By the time those bonds matured in 1988, uh, 1989, 18-year bonds, they would have bought him one Toyota Corolla and a small amount of change. He was robbed. He was robbed. Of, I can't think of the number, 17, 18 cars. That's right. Uh, and they had his money. They had his money. And that's the point I'm making. Inflation and benefits he, some people and yeah. screws other people. And he was the prudent one. Yeah, he was. that's right. He was the guy th thinking he was being safe and cautious and, and lost most of the proceeds of his life's work. Not only that, he was investing in New Zealand in the sense Yep. By saving his money. I think you and I will both agree that when you buy a house from a government's perspective, it's consumption, not investment. It doesn't add to our output and the sense of productivity. You bought your house for how much again, Don? 43000 What would it be worth now? Uh, well, my wife and I separated in the late 1980s. At that point, it was worth about $1.5 million. It's probably worth two and a half or three million now. Yeah, I think you're light on that too. That yeah. was the case. Yeah. And of course, it's totally unproductive behaviour. That's right. That's right. And that and that's how inflation it favours unproductive behaviour and penalises productive behaviour which is working, saving, and investing. So your uncle worked, he saved, and he invested. He invested in particular in government bonds. So all of that was what you want more of to have a productive economy. 
someone buying a house and sitting on it while it personally enriches them, at the end of it, the economy still just got the house. That's right. Exactly. So uh, there's a fairly wide consensus that inflation itself is damaging, and it's not only damaging economically, but it it uh, differentially affects, I mean, it affects people in different ways. Some people have benefited hugely, and some people are strongly disadvantaged, screwed up. I would have kind of, kind of used the word, but that's probably a bit impolite on this program. But it, it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. So the general, I think, consensus across many countries now is the best way of running an economy is to have minimal inflation. Mm-hmm. When the Reserve Bank Act was amended by the fourth Labour government in 1989, our target was to get inflation between zero and two. Why not zero? Uh, because the estimate was at the time that there's a measurement bias and that 1% measured inflation is actually very close to zero inflation. So that was the target. Um, okay, it's now one to three, but it's not very different from, from no inflation. That's the widespread view. Now, the question is, how do you best achieve that? Well, we know from bitter experience, the Rob Muldoon government tried to uh, eliminate inflation by putting controls on everything, all the prices of wages uh, of uh, goods and services and wages and dividends, et cetera, and it didn't work. So how do you fight inflation? Uh, well, the, the widespread international consensus is you best do that by changing the price of money, in other words, changing interest rates. If you make interest rates higher, you reduce the incentive to borrow and increase the incentive to save. And I guess the the basic assumption is that inflation arises when total demand in the economy exceeds the the economy's capacity to produce at stable prices. If demand exceeds that, then other things being equal, prices start going up. Conversely, when inflate, when demand falls below the economy's capacity produced, uh, prices begin to fall. Uh, so the Reserve Bank's task is to try to keep the demand in the economy as close to the economy's capacity as they can. When uh, through the lockdowns. The government was borrowing money off the Reserve Bank. Is that correct? I got uh, that around the right way? It's complicated, wasn't it? It was complicated. That's right. They didn't borrow directly from the Reserve Bank and, and have never done so for a long time, not okay. since the 80s. Uh, what the Reserve Bank did at that time was buy government bonds okay. in the market in an attempt to reduce long-term interest rates. And they were spending a billion a week at times doing that. That's correct. Yeah. A billion is a lot of money, Don. And uh, not so much if you say it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I had a joke. I used to explain it. It's a, a million dollars is a hundred dollars stack of a hundred dollar bills stacked a meter high. Yeah. And you can picture that. Yeah. But no one gets that a billion is it's a kilometre high. That's right. It's, it's, and it, roll, it rolls off the tongue like a million. A billion, right. million, they're all impossible yeah. numbers to us. Yeah. But it's a thousand times that metre high $100 bills. 
right. a billion a week. And so that was, of course, that got us through the lockdown. Hallelujah. We were sitting at home watching Netflix, eating chips, drinking beer, um, and ordering on Amazon. It was fantastic. But just like as the pounds gathered around our waistlines, that billion dollars was creating a lot of demand without the production to go with it around yeah. the world. Yeah, that's around right. Around the world. Right, that's right. And so unless carefully managed and the sharp medicine came on before it was considered necessary almost, we were always going to have this problem. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, it's it's also true that some economies got by with almost no inflation. I mean, mm. Japan had almost no inflation, China had no almost no inflation, etc. So some countries either got clever or got lucky, not quite sure which they were. But but certainly US, UK, European Union, uh, New Zealand, Australia all had inflation which was much higher than their targeted inflation rate. You've been on our show before, Don, and you've said the big thing in fighting inflation is what people expect to happen. Yeah. So what the government, and particularly the Reserve Bank governor, has to do is snuff out the expectation that prices are going to forever increase. Of course, when you were knocking inflation for six, we'd endured inflation for years and years and years. One of the fascinating things to me is inflation for us now is an aberration, not the other way around. I yeah. mean, when you started in Reserve Bank Governor, we all thought you had an impossible job because we'd never known uh, living and we'd never known zero to two inflation, right? You're about the only person in the country that believed it was possible, sort of thing. But now business people homeowners, uh, everyday people doing their shopping, they expect inflation now to end, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm a bit nervous about the uh, current wage expectations. I mean, we've had quite significant uh, wage demands recently, unsurprisingly, given where inflation is. But the risk is that if that continues for very long, people start thinking that 5 or 6% is normal. I must say that when we first targeted zero to two, even in the Reserve Bank, most people thought this is nuts. We're never, never going to oh, really. Yeah. Well, I said, you were like you were like Winston Churchill going into a defeatist cabinet, saying we can beat the Germans. Um, <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> most of my colleagues thought we would get it to five without too much trouble. Okay. That could, and that was sort of regarded as as good, but. Uh, Roger Douglas made it very clear. He meant no, he meant price stability, not 5% inflation. Because even at 5%, you know, prices double every what? Every 14 years. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, Adrian Orr can do it. Um, he must be also troubled because governments like spending money and opposition parties 
trying to win government, like promising to spend money. And the flip side of monetary policy, which is to say uh, money supply and interest rates, is government spending, fiscal policy. And the two are usually at loggerheads because you have a government spending like a drain, spending more than it's got, and therefore in of itself creating this demand right through the economy without producing anything. And you've got the Reserve Bank trying to throttle demand that doesn't match production, which is a simplistic way of saying that the, the, the monetary policy is having to fight this fiscal policy, right? That, that's right. And I think, uh, to be fair, Adrian Orr has made the point a couple of times that monetary policy needs mates. I think it was an expression which Ruth Richardson invented indeed. back in the early 90s. And, and that's absolutely correct. Um, the most remarkable but thing... Politicians need votes. Well, that's right. But I think perhaps the most remarkable thing that happened during my entire 14 years as governor uh, took place in 1996 when we had a national government wanting to reduce taxes. Bill Birch was the Minister of Finance. And he actually wrote to me formally and said, we plan to reduce taxes. Can we do that without prompting an aggressive monetary policy response? Wow. Uh, So he understood the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy. And since he was, of course, the government and, and had specified the inflation target, it was a reasonable thing for him to say, uh, given that I've given you that inflation target, can you still meet it without unduly cranking up interest rates if I cut taxes? So he understood very clearly that interrelationship. Was that exchange made public at the time? Uh, I think it was. I can't be absolutely Because isn't that so interesting compared to what it was previously when literally the Prime Minister of the day, most famously Robert Muldoon, would literally get on the throne Yep. and tell the Reserve Bank Governor what he and he he could do That's and when he could do yep. it. Yep, yep. When Roger all... became Minister, of course, his, his instruction to Treasury, find a way of Muldoon-proofing monetary policy. That was the expression he used. Um, I shouldn't do this to you, but I always remember you telling me that the previous Governor of the Reserve Bank had a car and a driver. And people may not know this who don't live in Wellington, but the Reserve Bank, correct me if I got this memory wrong, because memories are funny things, would the Reserve Bank is on the terrace, but right opposite the Beehive. Literally, you'd cross the street. And did he get the car to go to the Beehive? Yeah, I mean, that that your memory is pretty accurate, Rodney. I mean, the story was that I'd been governor a couple of weeks and my secretary reminded me that I had a mini- meeting with the Minister of Finance and the car was downstairs waiting for me. <laughs> I, I governor must be, uh, the, the minister must have been in, in Days Bay or something of the kind uh, for some reason. But no, no, he was in his office, as you say, in the Beehive, and that's about 200 yards. Uh, you'd normally uh, walk it in, in, what, three minutes, less than that. Yeah. So it was crazy. But it was symptomatic of the fact that at that point, the Reserve Bank had, I don't know if your listeners are interested in this point, but central banks create what's called seniorage income. Seniorage income is something that only central banks have, reserve banks have, because we give pieces of paper and now pieces of plastic out as banknotes. 
which we sell for value, we take that value invested in government bonds, typically. So if we have no issue of, say, $3 billion, as we did when I left the role of Reserve Bank, invested at, say, government bonds at that point about 6%, it means you have an annual income of $180 million arising from that note issue, it's called senior income, you have no offsetting costs. You don't have to put, you don't have money on deposit. So you don't have enough. 180 million bucks is a lot of money. Good business if you can get it. Oh, absolutely right. An awful lot of, of uh, salaries and artworks and, and, and luxurious dinners. And people don't realize that the 1989 Act, which specified an inflation target, et cetera, also deprived the central bank of that senior income. The Treasury and the Minister said that should belong to the Crown. It shouldn't be at your discretion to spend it as you like. And it was. It had been. Absolutely. I we did not know that. Like and handed out over the balance as a dividend to the Treasury. But the first crack went at running the Reserve Bank. And as a consequence, the Reserve Bank was, in my view, grossly overstaffed and, and in many respects overpaid. Because you took the staff down enormously, right? Yeah, when I when I started, uh, the staff was about five hundred and fifty. When I left, mind you, that was nearly fourteen years later, uh, one hundred eighty five. Um, and and there were a number of reasons for that, but yes, we we cut the staff quite drastically, and we made all kinds of other savings. Uh, the, the funniest one is is involved the banknotes. You might you remember may recall this. Um, we told the company printing our banknotes that we were going to have to go to competitive tender because we would got this very tight constraint on our spending, which the minister had laid down. And they said, you can't. We said, why not? They said, because we uh, own the copyright on the New Zealand banknotes. No. When we went to decimal currency way back in the 60s, uh, someone had signed away the copyright on the banknotes. And, to, a, and, to a private company? Yeah. No way. Private company was was a subsidiary of Delarue and the big British note printing company. And uh, when we went to, they said we couldn't go to tender. So at that point, we changed the design of the banknotes. You may recall pre-early 90s, all the banknotes had the queen on them. And I decided to, to get around this copyright issue. That was the reason which prompted it. We should have New Zealanders on the banknotes. So we kept the queen on the 20 and put New Zealanders, of course, on the other four. And... Uh, went to competitive tender. De La Rue won the tender again, but the price per note was about a third lower than it had been. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. How did you choose which New Zealanders would go on the banknote? Well, that was that was a fun. That was one of the most, most intriguing thing I did during my 14 years. In some ways, uh, I decided we should have one male Pākehā, one female Pākehā, uh, one Maori of either gender, and one sports person of either gender and any ethnicity. I, I should say that they have to be dead. International convention is very strong. You never put a live person on a banknote unless the head of state. So the queen because they off. could could turn out they're paedophile or something. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very bad to have a paedophile on your five dollar bill. It is. So we put um, Rutherford on the at male Pakeha. We, was the only Nobel Prize we had at that point. So just back that up a bit. You decided that, and you presumably ran it past your board. That, that was, I don't. I, I probably did, but the board doesn't have decision making. No, so it was your decision. 
I, I recall ringing the Prime Minister uh, at the time, and uh, he said, oh, I'll put it to the Cabinet on Monday. I said, Prime Minister, actually, it's not a Cabinet decision. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting. Yeah. So, sorry, I interrupted you. It was your decision, and you chose Rutherford. Yeah. yeah. The female Pākehā chose herself, in a sense. The note was coming out in 1993. Oh, yes. Centenary of women getting the vote. Kate Shepard was the principal uh, protagonist for that cause. So that was easy. I thought choosing a Maori would be very tough. So many different iwi, king movement, anti-king movement, etc. But of course, we chose uh, Aparanata. And I had no pushback at all. He was a giant. He was a giant. That's right. I got no complaints from anybody. Then, of course, find a dead sports person. And I, I thought, Lovelock, he won a big race, but that was all he really achieved. And he died under mysterious circumstances mm. at 36. Nipia, oh, Nipia was a great all black, but actually, not only was the second Maori, he was the same iwi as Nata. I thought that's mm. pushing my luck a bit. Um, dead. And finally, of course, I broke all the conventions and put Hillary on when he was still alive. Um, Did you ring him? Of course. In fact, what did he say? I rang his home. <laughs> it's quite funny. Uh, Lady Hillary said, uh, look, Ed's in, in Europe, but he won't want to be in a banknote. I can assure you of that. But <laughs> here's his phone number in case you want to ring him. <laughs> so I rang <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's quite enthusiastic. And interestingly, he was the only one that I encountered any pushback about at all, um, surprisingly, uh, in my view. Um, I know why. And there were two kinds of pushback, and none of them complained that he was alive, but but uh, some people said he um, lived with a woman who was not his wife when he was High Commissioner of Delhi, and, of course, he subsequently married her. They were, mm-hmm. He was a widower. She was a widow. And they finally got married. But but the other objection, of course, was that in 1975, yes. he, he he led Citizens for Rolling. I've never forgiven him. No. Well, <laughs> there were some people in the National Party who, who were kind of brassed off because he'd been obviously anti-Muldoon. Um, well, um, he had that wonderful iconic status. Yeah which crossed everything. And I was never a Muldoon supporter. I never voted for Muldoon. And I would have been a very young man, you know, in 1975, you know, 1920. Um, But that to me was like an all-black telling you how to vote. It was just not proper. And you couldn't have that godlike status and descend to petty politics to me and those ads in the paper and telling me or others what they should think and do. And it was, um, I never forgave him. Uh, well, you might have been uh, some of those people objecting, but in yes. fact, it was interestingly, I chose him finally for two reasons. One is, uh, before I'd made decisions, I would ask people at dinner parties or whatever, who do you think should win the banknote? And before I could say they have to be dead, Hillary was almost always the first person suggested. Mm. The second thing, I was visiting my my then brother-in-law in Singapore and uh, sitting in his home watching television, and an ad for the Shangri-La Hotel came on. 
And Ed Hillary was shown walking through the hotel, walking through the hotel grounds. No caption, no voiceover. And I said to my brother-in-law, I said, I know who that is, but in Singapore? He said, everybody knows who that is. I thought, there can't be a better known New Zealander no. anywhere. So I broke all the rules and, and put him on. Well, good for you. Um, and thankfully, his only indiscretion was saying to vote for Rowling. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, and living with a widower um, in sin. But he was famous, I felt, for how he used his fame. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you just climbed Everest and left it at that, he would be like George Nepia. But yep. Hillary went on to give so much back. Yep. And in particular, to me, it seems shivers down my spine to think of all the work he did for the Nepalese. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, lost his wife. Um, yep. Because he could have just lived a grand old life, right? That's right. He could have dined out, been famous, um, wined and dined, had endorsements, commercialized his fame, had a TV show. He was absolutely classically humble and used the fame that he had to benefit other people. That's right. That, yeah. to me, is what made him marvellous. And, and even uh, right towards the end of his life, after his portrait was on the banknote, uh, Rotary International approached him and said, look, would you mind signing some banknotes which we can uh, use to, to sell and raise money for the Nepalese orphans that he was trying to help? And he signed a $1,000 banknotes uh, and, and marketed them. Yeah, and, you signed Rotary International. Yeah, that, I might say, John. Of course, you printed. signed more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I imagined your full-time job being sitting in your office just signing banknotes, Don. <laughs> What's it like, by the way, walking around New Zealand and seeing your name on every banknote? It's I shame. reckon that would be cool. It, it was very cool, very cool. Only once got me into trouble. I was buying some groceries at the supermarket. <laughs> you gave a check and they said it didn't match. No. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't have any, any ID on me. I had an ID, so I produced this banknote. I think it was $20, I think, from memory. And and uh, the girl behind the counter was sure I was trying to bribe her. <laughs> 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 I did it um, once. Uh, and what's it like to see your name slowly disappearing? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> fortunately, my ego it doesn't seem to be too sensitive, uh, so <laughs> I'm not duly worried about that. <laughs> I just think, I mean, I used to think that you have your name on every banknote and people are carefully hoarding them and kids are counting them and money's everything and there's your signature up there with the Queen and Aparananada and Ed Hillary and Kate Shepard. Um, that, to me, was fabulous. So the inflation thing is... Interest rates have to go up because if they don't, it's pain now. If they don't, inflation will continue to increase and increase and increase until the country economy actually collapses or 
you then decide when it gets really bad to stop inflation and the medicine is a lot worse because it's become an endemic within the economy. And so this is just something that we have to do to maintain a stable economy, uh, prosperity, and um, a dollar today being worth a dollar next week. Yep, that's right. And the quicker that we do it, the better it is for all of us, absolutely all of us. Yeah, because as long as it lasts, as you said earlier, inflation expectations uh, become entrenched. You start assuming prices are going to go up. You behave as if they're going to go up. In fact, I may have told the story on your program previously of, of the Television New Zealand contest. They asked viewers to write in about their suggestion on how to control inflation. And uh, I was one of the on the judging panel. The person who got second, I can't recall who got first, but the guy who got second suggested that because inflation is caused by people expecting prices to go up, in other words, inflation expectations, you should spread a rumour that prices are about to fall. And if people believe it, they'll stop buying. And retailers, of course, desperate to get some sales, will cut their prices. And they my gosh, they were right. So <laughs> we have a self-fulfilling prophecy in the same way it does on the other way up. And I thought he should have uh, got uh, got the first prize, actually, because yes. inflation expectations are very, very important in the whole process. The governor's got to make it absolutely clear that come hell or high water, he's going to control inflation. Mm. And uh, you know, he'll... and that he's got the government. The government's got his back. Interestingly, right. about spreading rumors, I've just read one of the greatest books I've ever read, uh, Robert Caro's massive biography of Lyndon Johnson. And in the twenties and thirties. It was standard practice in politics to pay people to spread rumors. And it was hilarious. And like they were they were experts at it. And they'd literally go into town and go into the local pub or local milk bar or whatever it was where people would congregate and they'd watch and they'd work out who was the person that everyone would listen to. And then they'd go across and buy them a drink and then say, oh, that candidate so-and-so, you've got no idea, you know, about his private life, and then tell a story, and it would go right through that town, and then they'd go to the next town and the next town. So there was sort of like pre-internet um, rumour spreading, and and it was, a, it was astonishingly effective. Isn't that interesting to me? Um, that they paid people to do that. <laughs> so, how many rumor spreaders have we got this election? <laughs> um, and what what's the good what's the juicy one this year? Um yeah. so that's great, Don. Now you were involved before you were Reserve Bank Governor. You were involved many, many, I think in a couple of tax reports for the government, like massive tax reports, because the tax system had become ramshackle. Four reports. Sorry? Four. Four. Mm. Um, so you are well across um, the tax system as a whole rather than the minutiae of tax law and tax policy. It was the idea of what we should be taxing um, in large. Were you involved in the GST report or was that McCaw for some reason? I got that. No, who, no, who, did, no. who did the GST report? Uh, I did. 
Oh. It was, I, did, I was the chairman of a three-person committee. Who was on the committee? Uh, Alan Martin, who was a Wellington-based retailer, yeah. a big uh, appliance retailer. Yeah. And... Um, Someone oh, else. Uh, yeah, a lawyer. Uh, uh, just momentarily can't... Don't worry. Don't worry. He's a lawyer anyway. Yeah. And and what year... Do you remember the year that was recommended? Oh, 85, of course. 85. It was the year after uh, the 84 government took office. And that was the report that recommended a consumption tax? GST? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, the Treasury and Roger Douglas together had decided on a consumption tax. Yes. And our task was to design it. Ah. And and uh, it, it was broadly accepted to be on everything, but but we had to do all the sort of uh, details. And, and Roger Douglas basically said, look, large companies can handle any complexity in the tax system. They've computerized systems and so on, but small companies can't. And he'd heard horror stories from the UK where small companies were sort of buried in in costs trying to operate their VAT, their value-added tax, which is just the same as a GST. So he said, look, I want you to design the GST, which minimizes the compliance costs. And of course, it takes no genius at all to work out that you do that by having one rate on everything. And and, uh, that's, of course, the system we have. Uh, And I think Singapore has a similar system, but pretty well no one else does because uh, the political pressures on, on governments mean that uh, lots of things get exempted at, at enormous cost. I mean, India has four different GST rates and lots of exemptions as well. I mean, it's, 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 it's mind-boggling. Now, we have to go through this because it sounds so plausible, so straightforward, so obvious, because you say, oh, I'll take GST or fruit and veggies. Or is that what Labor's actually said, or is that what someone else said they said? It's some what someone else said they said. I think, <laughs> I think Mr. Willis said that's what they have in mind to do. Okay. Now, and Labor and then, hasn't denied that. Yeah. Okay. And then New Zealand First says we're even better than that and more caring. We'll take GST or food. And you think, that's amazing. Yeah, why not? Because why, why, why should we tax something that is so necessary? And we have had this argument, Don, literally since 1985. And every time it comes up, it gets comprehensively demolished for a thousand and one reasons. It is that bad. It's in, it's a, it's unconscionable. We're going to get to that. But something else in the larger picture is also missing because people seem to forget that if the government doesn't raise that amount of tax on food, they either have to raise that somewhere else or cut spending or borrow. Yep. And it's like this half half-assed view of the world. Oh, just cut or make food cheaper. And it's like, where did it come from, that money? And so that bigger picture of thinking about tax is not seen. It's this idea that government can just make things free. 
Because in a sense, from a budgetary point of view, taking GST off food or fruit, we'll just say food rather than fruit and veggies, easier to say food. Or If you take tax or food, you could get there just by saying, oh, we'll subsidise it, right? You would say, oh, that'd be stupid, right? But that's essentially what you're doing mm-hmm. um, in a budgetary sense. But I want you to walk us through how it's, I would say, impossibly complex to take GST or fruit and veggies because you'll never get the edges right and you'll create a nightmare for every business in New Zealand. Explain that to us. Yeah, I mean, that's quite right. People talk about exempting food or fruit and vegetables. Um, What they probably mean technically is what they call zero rating uh, those items. And there's a difference because if you exempt something, a business selling an exempt product can't claim back the GST the business has paid on the inputs for that for that uh, uh, business. So that would be very, very complex. Instead, I think what they would propose to do, what actually would do if they put this dopey policy, would be what they call zero rating the product, which means, as, as they do with exports, if you're producing exports, you don't charge your foreign customer GST, but you are able to claim back the GST that you have paid as a business buying the inputs for that, right. for that product. So it would be zero rating. But the complexity arises partly because of the definitional question. What is what is a fruit or vegetable? What is a, what is a bit of food? Uh, how do you define it? Do you, if you're exempting fresh fruit and vegetables, for the sake of argument, what about... Uh, Chopped pineapple, is that a fresh fruit and vegetable? Uh, what about juices? And and most countries have dealt with that, but it's a it's a bit of a nightmare. Uh, all countries have well, many countries have exemptions, and it's 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 dopey. But the second issue, which Roger Douglas pointed out, once you say we won't tax fruit and vegetables, say, what about doctors' bills? Mm. What about books? What about medicines? What about children's shoes? So many good things on the face of it, we wouldn't like to tax. So once you open the uh, open the floodgates to one desirable product, what about all the other desirable products? And as long as you have a have a real uh, Swiss cheese with holes through it, uh, and it's a nightmare. What you're likely to get then, of course, is a much higher rate of GST. Our fifteen percent is well below the OECD average, which is about nineteen percent. Most of the countries in Europe have a GST rate above 20. So we tax everything, but it's a much lower rate than most other countries which do have GST. Uh, And and the final issue um, is is, uh, most of the benefit of cutting this tax doesn't go to the poor. If you're trying to help people who are struggling with their budget, why would you give a, 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 a tax reduction which actually helps mostly you and me? Mm. And and because we we spend a lot on food because we can afford to. That's right. And we buy luxury food. We mm. don't buy cheap white bread. We buy mm. luxury stuff. Mm. So we give away a lot. The government gives away a lot of revenue to people. They're not actually trying to help. 
So it's a, it's a very inefficient way of helping people which the government presumably wants to help. And of course, the classic approach in economics is to separate out the two objectives. So with a tax, you're trying to raise a target amount of money, at least cost, which is to make it simple, tax everything at one rate, and um, less distortionary, which is to keep it simple at one rate. And um, then you say, now I want to help poor people. And you say, well, I'll help poor people by boosting their income. Yep. And that's then targeted. Yep, exactly So, um, Well, we do a rather poor job of that in New Zealand too, but you can actually target your support to those that need it. And so if you are looking at um, helping people with their weekly bill at the supermarket, you'd say, well, okay, let's give them some income support. Um, and of course, then the dopiness of all that comes out because there's so many supports there now. It's it's um, almost crazy, but it's a beautiful soundbite for a politician. It sounds so caring. Yeah. And I don't think it's unfair to say this: Chris Hipkins, Winston Peters, Chris Luxon, David Seymour. They will say what they need to say to win votes. It's sort of a necessity, isn't it? I mean, Chris Luxon is probably the one under the most constraint because he's the would-be contender for prime minister. And so he has to be um, accountable for what he promises. Whereas David Seymour, and I've been in his position, he can sort of say things. And he doesn't want to say economically illiterate things because people that support it will eviscerate him. But he doesn't actually have to do it like Chris Luxon has to. That's true. That's true. And you've been in both positions, leader of national heading <laughs> into election and leader. I just suddenly realized that. You've got a great insight into this. So we have to see through that political promise. Now, I want to finish up, Don, and... Thank you for that. I just have, I love talking to you because that being Reserve Bank Governor, that was something very, very special. Yeah, that was the highlight of my career, uh, both because of a large block of time, but secondly, because I was lucky enough to be in that position when Roger Douglas said, let's change the whole framework. Yeah. And and, uh, we pioneered something quite internationally unique. Yeah. Inflation no, time. it was, it was, um, and just that little story of the car, of choosing, just choosing. Are they, and they're still on the banknote, those people, are they? Yes, they are. My signature, of course, is gone, but those yes. people have changed, yeah. Because there'd be an upset to change it, so you just stick with it. Uh, well, I, mean, I think in due course there may, may come a time. But, I mean, I think... Rather we could than... put Willie Jackson or someone on next. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Jacinda Ardern. Indeed, indeed. Dame, Dame Jacinda Ardern. Dame Jacinda Ardern. Yeah. And people forget what a, a giant Rutherford was. I didn't realise oh, myself. Oh, yeah, no. But Charles Murray did a book looking at who contrib- who's contributed most to human knowledge since 800 BC. Physicists, Isaac Newton, 
Albert Einstein, Rutherford, that order. Wow. Yeah, he's right up there among the giants. And, of course, he was a great encourager of students mm-hmm. who went on to, I think, win Nobel Prizes, you know, like Rutherford's yeah. people he encouraged and mentored. Yeah, that's right. He was a giant. It's too easy to forget. Um, I just read last night about Kate Shepard for some reason. I don't know why. And I hadn't realized that her big thing was temperance. So she was dead against alcohol. And she was in the, what was it called? The temperance? Women's Christian temperance movement. You've yeah. got it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Women's Christian temperance And the reason they wanted the vote was to stop the booze and (laughs) drugs and improve the sexual mores, right? And I rolled around the floor. I I was on my own, just, you know, everyone in the family, because I was just reading it, were wondering what the hell had happened, because I was rolling around the the floor laughing my head off. I couldn't stop it, because the idea of the likes of Helen Clark and... Judith Tizard and Jacinda Ardern fawning over this woman, right, when her big thing was being a good Christian, being sexually proper and not boozing or or whatever, um, they only took the little bit of getting the vote. Isn't that a did you, and you knew that all along? Uh I had some of that background, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to see her. I'm going to see her on the note now, with a quite new interest. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm a great follower. You know, the Christian, hundred percent, not boozing, hundred percent, not taking drugs, hundred percent. Woman vote, mm, yeah, was, I guess. <laughs> but um, she's like this um, amazing person, and they forget um, who she was. Um, and all of that. Don, just before you go, would you think, would you like to be in Chris Luxon's shoes if you were 20 years younger and taking over? Obviously, we'd all like to be Prime Minister, I guess, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, but uh, I'm. I take heart from the fact that Seymour is driving a very hard uh, kind of policy line. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a National Act coalition could be quite powerful. Yes, but how do they take the people with them? Well, uh, at the moment, the people are very, very grumpy with what they've got. Mm. So I suspect that helps them a bit. Would you, I'd almost park the economy, just let it tick along, and deal with those fundamental issues of citizenship and sovereignty. Well, I mean, on that, Seymour is very, very good. I've yeah. heard it a number of times, and he's he's unambiguously clear that there's no future at all if we're going to divide us ourselves on the basis of race. And uh, that because I, you, you can take the majority of New Zealand with you on free speech and one source of citizenship. But there's a generation of 
activists growing up, yep, and it's now just not a few who are going to view that government as Nazis, literally. And I could imagine the country becoming ungovernable. Yeah, it was a very good article by Chris Trotter some time. Oh, okay, good, yeah. Um, which, who made that point very strongly. It'll be a hell of a hard to change the direction on this issue, given we've got to. won't be easy at all. But we have to be up for it, don't we? And we do, otherwise we're done for. Mm. And, I mean, when you think back to your years in Reserve Bank Governor, advising on tax policy, even leader of the National Party and leader of the ACT Party, while all this was bubbling away, particularly in the latter years, the main thrust was the economy. Yep. In 84, we faced a calamity and a threat to our economic sovereignty. In 2023, we face a threat to our sovereignty, yeah, to our nationhood, to That's who right. we are. That's right. And we have to see it in those terms. And in some ways, it's easier because it's not that economic pain, but it's the social expectations that years and years of, well, I'll call it for what it is, appeasement of activists has led us to. And an appeasement without principle. Yeah. uh, Before we go quickly, I'll tell you one little story, Don. One of the greatest things that happened to me, apart from meeting you, was I had dinner with Thomas Sowell, the great oh, big really? economist. Oh, yes. Wow, when was that? 1989. He came to the Mount Pellerin Conference. And I detected, I watched him, I saw him walk across the lobby, and James Buchanan called out to him, and he looked nervous and looked away and ran to the lift. And I realized he was an intensely shy and private man. That's right. And for, for listeners, he's the great black economist who studied under Gary Becker and, uh, no, sorry, uh, George Stigler and Milton Friedman did his PhD and went on to become, uh, he's still alive, he's 93, 94, he's just a fabulous author. Still writing, yeah. Still writing. And he, um, and so because he was a black man, he stood out, you know, in Christchurch. And I got into a lift and he hopped into the lift later on. And I sort of looked at him, and it was like a young boy meeting his hero and like I was a fanboy. And I sort of said, oh, you're Thomas Sowell, because <laughs> he was at a free market conference and he was black, right? Well, who else could he be? <laughs> and I said, oh, you're Thomas Sowell? And he said, yes. And I said, you know, I would really like to take you for dinner with some of my students. And he just looked at me and said, I'd love that. Mm-hmm. And we went for a dinner with like, you know, half a dozen graduate students. And it was the greatest dinner of my life. We went to this funny little Indian place or like it was a, just a Mexico. It was like a, just a little restaurant. It was like sitting in a, in, a, in a seminar room. He just talked his next 
three books to us. Wow. And then he ended up, I said to him, well, what would you like to do in Christchurch? And he said he'd like to take pictures of the Port Hills. I said, oh, I'll take you up. So I got my old Ford Mark I Cortina and drove him around the Port Hills and took him home for dinner. And um, he had been an intelligence officer in the Korean War and had learned to take pictures. And I thought it would take him five minutes. I thought, well, I'm going to do with him all day to drive him around the Port Hills and get his little camera out and take shots. No, no, no. He had a um, tripod, a box. He had one of those curtains, blankets that you put over your head. Wow. It took him like an hour or two to take a picture. And then he came to our place for dinner. And um, 1989, and I said to him, oh, what would you do about this, you know, treaty Maori stuff? Because for listeners' benefit, he had written about affirmative action being a worldwide disaster that everywhere it was tried it had left to it had led to violence not just political dissension but violence and he said well how much do you think it will take you know to fix it and i said well i said look for some reason the fiscal envelope wasn't a thing then um but it must have been being discussed and I said, there's a talk. You're not going to believe this, Tom. But there's talk of a government giving these tribes that didn't exist, these, you know, would-be chances who suddenly decided they hit up an iwi. There's talk of giving them a billion dollars. Madness. And he looked at me and said, make it 10. Yeah. I said, 10 billion. I said, there'd be a bloody riot. I said, that's a ridiculous amount. And he said, that's the point. You make it the most ridiculous amount that you can think of. And then you say, and that's it. And you immediately disband the Waitangi Tribunal, cut out every reference to Maori in every piece of legislation in New Zealand and say from this moment we're not even going to recognize Maori. Yeah. We're all one citizen. Yeah. And he says, I promise you, it'll prove cheap. Yeah. And I thought the great Tom Sowell is a little nutty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. Twenty yeah. billion would have been cheap. Yeah, that's right. That's Great right. Great story. I've never forgotten him telling me that. And um, because he had studied, and of course he had been a Marxist, was well understanding of Marxist theory. He'd written a book on Marxism. Had known all the Marxists and knew exactly what the agenda was, piece by piece by bit, to create this racial tension and to destroy um, economies in Western society. Mm -hmm. So there you go, Don. Well, you're mm -hmm. on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a discursive conversation across Casey Costello through to Tom Sowell. We did GST. We did inflation. We did why Ed Hillary's on the banknote. 
um, we covered what it's like to have your signature on all the money in New Zealand. And we talked of how the Reserve Bank used to have a lot of money for doing nothing and that the governor would take the lift down, hop in his driven car, cross the street, and go and see the Minister of Finance. Did the did the driver have a top hat or a tall? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's great. It's like the Queen. Don Brash, uh, former everything, done everything, and still going strong, and still would make a great leader of the ACT Party, the great leader of the National Party, would still make a great Reserve Bank governor, a very dear friend of mine, and a great New Zealander who has contributed such a lot. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Don. You enjoy the rest of your day. I know you're going to be working. Thank you. That's what you do. Thank you. Exactly true. I will be working. (laughs) Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.